Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mortimer, songwriter and creativity coach, and I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating conditions for meaningful change from the inside out. In this episode, I want to talk about uh, growth and grimacing. Um, This was inspired by a tweet from a while back. I've talked about it uh, before. You may have heard me mention it um, on the show in the past. Not one of mine. Um, It was a a tweet I came across one day, originally posted about 18 months ago. And it came to mind again in a recent um, book club meeting in The Haven about the the book The Courage to Be Disliked by Kashimi and Koga. Um, And I've also found it informing a project that I'm uh, in the middle of starting at the moment over on Patreon. And so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of this stuff on my mind at the moment, um, and I just want to use this episode as a as a an opportunity to unpack uh, this uh, the the implications of um, the I, I guess what I find what I find uh, kind of packaged up within this tweet. So I'm going to start by reading an entry from my journal a couple of days after I originally saw it. So this is from uh, around the spring of 2021. I saw this posted on Twitter the other day. If you're not grimacing every time you look at old work, then you aren't growing. I found it sad to read. It's another one of those, yeah, seems true ideas that bakes us into a structure of forever dissatisfaction and striving for the mirage of wholeness, completeness and lasting happiness. If we can't look at old work and allow it to sit within the story of who we are forever in the process of becoming, then we are stuck inside a tragic tale. I fear that that's where many of us are. It's a depressing relationship to have with your past self. I don't know what the intention behind it is. Maybe it was simply rushed and not really thought through, like most things on Twitter. But it doesn't seem helpful, especially as he has a lot of followers and is going to be influential. Whatever the intention, there is a spirit of this dissatisfaction, competition, and even ridicule pulsing through the veins. As if somehow newness is a sign of better. It's simply not the case that just because something is new, it's automatically better than something old, especially in a universal sense. Of course, there will be aspects you might look at and laugh at and think you'd do differently now. But this can be done with grace and acceptance, not shame and embarrassment, which to me is what grimace communicates. When I believe in this grimace, It's not just about the relationship I have with myself. It's about how I hold other people. It's about how I hold everything. If I was doing the best I could with what I had and still grimace when I look back at it, what am I doing with other people who are doing the best they can, where they are, with what they have now? And what about my relationship with who I am right now? If I'm judging, grimacing and feeling ashamed of what I did back then, I can rest assured that my future self will be waiting to judge my present self in much the same way. What if I could look back at my old work and say, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for being brave. Thanks for taking that step that contributed to the story of getting to where we are now. And what if I could look at my past work and see things in it that I couldn't do now? Growth isn't a one-dimensional linear thing. And part of growth is developing the wisdom and the maturity to understand that it happens in complex, cyclical and loss-infused ways. Growth is about letting go of resentment and critical judgment and opening up to acceptance and collaboration. The up-and-to-the-right approach to growth is a good example of the bad infinite, the insatiable monster that can never have enough of what it needs to keep going, yet is fulfilled by the belief that we can get to good enough if we just keep going just a little further. But with this mindset, no matter how much I have of what I want, the ability to let myself be satisfied is always just slightly out of reach. This attitude of grimacing at our past selves may be inextricably linked to aspects of dissatisfaction that we have in the present moment. And if that's undergirded by a belief that if only we do enough, eventually we will finally grow to happiness we will be forever damned to unsatisfactory dissatisfaction. It's a good example of, if you don't feel it now, you won't feel it then. If you can't find satisfaction and peace amidst the present, amidst the dissatisfaction, it would be strange to expect that you're going to find it at any point in the future. 
it carries an intrinsic lie within it. The ideology of promise, as Helen Rollins talks about. Todd McGowan writes, the imperative of infinite progress manifests most clearly in the anxiety produced by ageing and death under capitalism. He also talks about dissatisfaction being the site of satisfaction, which I really resonate with. This recognises the lie of the promise that we can reach wholeness. It finds satisfaction in the lack of wholeness. This is quite a challenge to get your head around. In fact, I'm not sure it's fully graspable as a concept, but it's beautiful. It speaks to the truth that we connect, we love, we enjoy, we feel only because there's something missing. It's the lack that brings space for the joy. Joy isn't what comes when that lack is filled. It comes because it's there. There's a contradictory heart of the assumption that newness equals growth and that this applies to our lives because growth is not linear and neither is one's work. The idea that old work is inferior suggests a very dull and linear pathway. Growth is a circling, it's a symphony, it ebbs, flows and cycles. We experience moments of great breakthrough and joy that doesn't just increase on one straight line, where there are long fallow periods when it appears like nothing is happening, things languish and we can't quite get the spark back that we see in our old work. Does this mean you're not growing? Maybe the grimace we experience when we look at the old work is one that says, wow, that was really something and now you've lost it. We grimace at the present rather than the past. Does that mean we're not growing? What are we growing out of? What are we growing towards? All we have is now and our relationship with who we were before we got here and who being here will take us to become is a complex web of experimentation, play, pain, surrender, growth and entropy. We're going round in circles as we move forwards. Maybe the grimace is simply a sign that something is wrong right now, a disconnection from our story, a surrendering of ourselves to the bad infinite and to that anxiety produced by ageing and death under capitalism. As if life is a fight against nature and as humans we're here to compete against anything and everything, including our past self, our present self and our future self. As if we can keep on growing indefinitely. If we feel the grimace looking at us, it's very hard to grow from a healthy place. It's a critical, scary, fear-inducing spirit to create and live from. It's urgent, desperate, scarce. It's ashamed, embarrassed and humiliated. In other words, it's fragmented and separated. It's on a quest to get somewhere that doesn't exist. But what is growth then? What does it mean in the context of a life that doesn't last forever? End of journal entry. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting to go back and read that. I really like the fact that it ended with a question as well. It's like a question that, you know, I've been thinking about a lot uh, ever since that time. Um, and this is the spirit um, with which I, I enter this topic as a question, not an answer. It's embracing uncertainty rather than declaring um, a sense of certainty, a sense of conviction about exactly what is the right way to think about this stuff. And I think I want to start by by talking about the fact that there is, of course, a playful grimace, uh, maybe more of like a, an eek, which conveys, um, I don't know, a, a variety of emotions, but maybe a sense of gratitude, a sense of pride at the bravery um, that your past self had in order to act despite imperfection or despite not knowing any better. You know, it's it's one of those things that, yeah, we might, you know, when you strip away all the superfi superficial surface stuff, um, and you look to the heart and the soul and the spirit of the work, um, actually there's something really um, powerful there, something really important, something that kind of chimes with uh, that constant self that is always present for you throughout the entirety of your life. And so, um, yeah, that's what kind of strikes me as amazing when I look um, back to the past. You know, I'm grateful that I didn't know any better because if I realised how little I knew, I would have definitely bottled it. I would have hidden. I would have said, there's no way I can release that. You know, there's something fascinating about that. But without the bravery to act, we have no growth. 
If we feel the grimace of judgment looking at us as we're about to take a step, it's unlikely that we're going to take that step. And so in this episode, I want to explore, you know, how we might enjoy the things that make us cringe, to find the constant self within the story, to understand the difference between casting and using judgment and to celebrate the bravery shown by ourselves to reach wherever we are today along that path so that we might act today. We might take inspiration to act today with the kind of courage and bravery that we might appreciate in the future. No matter how much what we do today, we'll look back on from the future and think, well, what was that? Um, And so if this feels like a big thing for you, I'd I'd love to invite you also to go deeper with me. I mentioned, um, you know, I'm kind of rattling around in a project that I'm doing um, um, starting at the moment on Patreon. It's kind of running through the veins of that um, as I go back through some of my own old work and explore it from this present position. Um, and so, yeah, kind of I, I'm excited about this this journey. I, it's going to be an interesting one, reflection, curiosity, laughter, um, you know, and, and I want it to be really useful for people who are listening as well. So if you struggle with uh, perfectionism, maybe you're trying to figure out uh, what to make next or, you know, what steps to take next, how to get started, uh, or you just want to kind of unshackle your creativity and let it out to play, then I think you're going to find it really valuable. Um, so I'd love you to to join me. Um, I'm going to b- build a pool of practical ideas there. Um, I've got some tools that I want to use um, for my own reflection, and then I'm going to share them with you um, so that you can use them for your own sort of creative um practice and journey and and to build that story of of who who you are um, becoming and kind of connecting the dots of where you've been in the past through that story. Um, And so, yeah, kind of, yeah, I I think combining those elements of like those past efforts that we might look from the present back at and think, you know, cringe essentially or grimace. Um, And we're going to integrate the different parts of our story so that you know, we flow with it rather than fight against it, rather than try and hide hide it, like to actually embrace that, as I say, that courage, that bravery, the stuff that is like, yeah, I'm so grateful that I did that, even if I am a little bit like, oh, I can't believe I put that out there. Growth is one of those words, isn't it? It's, it's like we know it, we recognize it, but we might not all hold it in quite the same way, um, especially this idea of, you know, personal or individual growth. Like, what does it mean to be growing as a person, you know, what it means for you probably means something different to me. Uh, why does it matter? Does it matter? <laughs> what does it give us? Um, and to sort of hold this question on the backdrop of nature where, you know, things like physical growth stops at different points, doesn't it? How do we hold our relationship with growth um, in a with perspective in a healthy way? There comes a time we all know where you're not going to grow any taller <laughs> fairly early on. Um, and you're like, oh, that's a shame. Um, and there comes a time when we might move beyond our capacity for peak p- physical performance as well, at least the kind that would enable us to compete with elite sports people like in the realm of elite professional sports. Like there comes a time where, yeah, you're, if, you, if you haven't done it already, there's no way that you're going to get there. Um, but growth is more than that, isn't it? Uh, but it's really important to just recognize the limits of it, to recognize the limits of the capacity um, that we have for it in different areas. Um, and I want, you know, personally, I want growth to feel good primarily in and of itself. It's not something that I do to get the edge over others. Um, it's something, and I think it has to come from this place, it's something I do because there's something intrinsically beautiful about the experience of doing something today that I couldn't do yesterday. And also kind of growing in the ability to hold the fact that there are things that I could do yesterday that I can't do today and I will never be able to do in quite the same way again. You know, there's a, there's a grief in that. Um, but grief also is a site of growth. I think this this whole thing is is growth in a nutshell. Um, and what a beautiful sort of growth to be aware of and to be nurturing. And I think maturity is seeing without resentment of what is no longer true. Those things that we cling on to, that's like, yeah, that you're not going to, there is no way to grow in that any further, but there are all these other opportunities because of that um, to grow in different ways, to grow deeper roots, to grow in whichever direction it is. Perhaps this is one of the most challenging 
um, things when it comes to um, to growth. And it's one of the things that actually only comes with age and experience. Um, you know, we've talked a few times in the Haven over the past year or so about how the wisdom of older generations, you know, society's elders, doesn't often have a solid platform from which to contribute to con- the conversation. Perhaps there are parallels to the tweet here where, you know, old is associated with past it and irrelevant. We would rather see action than uh, reflection. I'm currently reading The, um, the Burnout Society by Byung-Chul Han, uh, which is a fascinating critique of a world uh, of acceleration where intervals, betweens, interruptions are replaced by restless, hyperactive reaction and mental exhaustion. Mounting positivization drives the idea that action makes us free, and yet it's perhaps doing the opposite in reality, turning us into automatic performance machines rather than subjective beings with the power not to do or to say no. I wonder what face you see when you think of a grimace. We can imagine different grimaces, can't we, in in relation to what we do in life. I want to sort of reflect on a few of those, like... There's kind of endeavour pain, um, you know, the temporary discomfort in physical action, for example, like exercising, you know, that face you pull when you're like, oh, I need to get, I'm like in some pain, I can see the finish line or, you, you know, this is, this is the point I'm trying to get to. And you're just pushing through uh, beyond just in that, in the realm of like where you are capable, you're beyond that capacity zone. Um, it's a grimace that has an end in sight and it needs to have uh, that end in sight. It needs to have the thing that's worthwhile pulling it onwards as well. Uh, then there's the grimace of situational judgment. So it might be sort of associated with the idea, oh, I could never do that. Eww, I could never do that. So when you see something that someone else is doing and think, oh, no, thank you. Um, like, what are you doing? I, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, sort of put myself through that either because it's terrifying uh, or because there's like a disconnect between uh, your current perceived ability and the ability you perceive you would need to achieve that thing. So it might be sort of looking at um, maybe somebody who's even like, take an example of like speaking on stage, uh, for example, um, and you might think, oh, I could never do that. Um, and it might be something that you aspire to do. And maybe that's why you're pulling that grimace. Um, and actually you could, but there's like a disconnect there. There's a, sort of the, the bridge is missing between where you are and where you'd need to be in order to, um, yeah, sort of take those steps onto the stage. Um, then there's other judgment grimaces. Um, so like the sense of judging what is going on what somebody else is doing or what's happening to somebody. So like, yikes, this is terrible. I'm so embarrassed for them kind of thing. This is a grimace of embarrassment where you, you see, um, you see someone else doing something that's making you cringe. It's like, Oh, I'm glad I'm not you, uh, kind of thing. Um, either as a relatable failure, uh, like, Oh, we've all been there. We've all fallen over in that situation. Everyone's looking at us. Um, or as a judgment about why, like the thing that they're doing in the first place, like, what are you thinking? What are you, I can't believe you think that's a good idea. Um, that sort of vibe. Um, or it might be more like resentment. Like I really wish I was in their shoes or like a, an envy or a jealousy. Um, like, uh, I hate the fact that they're succeeding. That kind of thing. <laughs> um, and then self-judgment. So like shame, uh, disowning the past self um, for something that you find uncomfortable to think about, for example. Uh, it's the grimace that we've talked about already. Looking at yourself as if you're looking at another person and saying, oh, I'm embarrassed for you. Can't believe, like, what are you doing? Um, but then realising you're the one to be embarrassed for. Um, I imagine we've we've experienced probably all of those different um, grimaces at different points in life. I wonder if you can think of any other kinds uh, of grimaces that that pop up. They were the main ones for me. Um, you know, sometimes they're they're a little fleeting ones, aren't they? Like uh, when I'm performing and I um, hit a wrong note, there's always like this reflexive grimace. It's like oh, um, and I think. It, that's probably one of the reasons for that is it happens when something doesn't quite fit right. There's like a jarring moment. Uh, it might be a sensory experience like that 
like the the wrong note where something appears that disturbs the normal flow the expected flow uh, whether it's a bad smell or a weird flash dissonant sound a strange taste or just a weird um feeling like an uncomfortable feeling um yeah like what's an example of that it's, i don't know like turbulence <laughs> comes to mind something you're not expecting something that just disrupts the flow um maybe we have those sorts of grimaces as well it's like a quick fire judgment that says oh something isn't right quite right here um and so yeah judgment is interesting to think about in this way you know judging is something that we can i think use in helpful and also less helpful ways so let's start by distinguishing i mentioned it earlier this this idea of using and casting judgment i don't know if they're the correct words to use in this context but i'm going to use them just to help us think about two roles judgment plays for us using judgment is when we um, engage our critical thinking faculties to assess something against uh, a set of standards or criteria um, and seeing how well uh, things match up. You know, casting judgment, on the other hand, is when we indiscriminately throw judgment at something just because it's there. You know, this is what what we get when we think of judgmental people. Um, we're talking about someone's tendency to judge anything, everything, anyone, everyone, you know, you just know whatever it is that's in front of them, they're going to like cast a judgment and aspersion on it using an un- an unknowable set of standards. Essentially, kind of it's judgment at the level of existence in many ways. It might be positive. It might be negative uh, as a judgment. I don't think that's really the point w- with that sort of judgment. The point is the fact that judgment is unsolicited um, and uncalled for and also not tied to anything tangible. And we all do this. We all cast judgment and we make value judgments based on our own stuff, like projecting insecurities and things like that onto other people or, yeah, just creating our own our own standards by which other, we assume everything should be assessed, but not necessarily knowing what those standards are. Um, using judgment, on the other hand, pins the judgment on like to something agreed on by the person or the or the thing being judged you know in a competition for example um that's based on judgment we know what the judges what the judges are looking for we might not agree on their interpretation but we have something to hold like the we have the the criteria the standards to hold their judgment against so we're on the same page in that sense if a judge scores someone zero because there was, you know, it's just something about that person I don't really like. <laughs> That's casting judgment. It's giving an impossible set of criteria to work with that's come completely from your own, I don't know, <laughs> your own sort of intuitive self, uh, like unconscious, subconscious, whatever place. Um, and yeah, how, I mean, how much do we do that with ourselves? And what impact does this have on how we hold ourselves and how we hold one another and also how we hold the work that we do or the work that we've done in the past? When we cast judgment, we universalize and project. So if we think about that tweet and the idea of growth, if we're casting judgment through the grimace, we're saying I should be better or I should have been better. This is a foundation for shame, for perfectionism, for stagnation. You know, shame is born from too much attachment between the work and the self rather than saying, ha, that was an interesting approach I took. Uh, If I did it again today, I probably wouldn't do it quite the same way. Or, yeah, fair play for giving that a go. Good effort. The casting judgment says you did a really bad job there or it was embarrassing that you did that. Or even on the flip side, you are amazing. This kind of, yeah, positive thing can be a trip hazard as well because it relies on feeling about oneself rather than viewing the project as separate from oneself when we cast judgment we universalize and personalize the result i was a success or i was a failure and that starts to internalize a story i am a success or i am a failure or i should be a success or i imagine i will be a failure again here this can lead to perfectionism holding on to something because output is too closely tied to our self-concept and stagnation when perfectionism goes all the way it leads to inaction 
It has to, because perfect doesn't exist. Unless we find a way to let go, perfectionism can only lead to a lack of action. The irony with this tweet is that growth is only possible when we let go, and letting go becomes a lot harder when we feel like we're being judged, even by our future self, for what we're bravely putting out. So there are other ways to judge, rather than judging the person or ourselves at the level of kind of being in existence. We can view ourselves as separate from our projects. In fact, it starts by separating ourselves from our projects. This is a really simple yet difficult thing to do, especially when we're invested in what we're doing. Whether it's our creative endeavours, our relationships, our work, or any kind of like intention or goal in life. If we can see our projects as entities in themselves, we can use judgment to improve them and keep them from being sort of conduits of judgment about us as people. We need to see the project and say, this is not me. So when we have a feeling that, well, this could be improved, and then ask the question, how could this be improved? It's not following the sentiment that I should be improved. It brings me into the journey of improving the thing I'm holding. So whether we're looking at a relationship or a creative project or a business or whatever, and we're using judgment that says, this isn't quite working as I'd like it to. We can take a more objective look at it and say, you know, what can I do to help improve this? Rather than, why am I so bad at this? Likewise, and maybe on the flip side, it's important to acknowledge that the success of this project doesn't change who I am. It doesn't make me a great relationship person or the ultimate creative person. It just means I'm someone who saw what was in front of me and invested in a in that thing in a way that made a better outcome possible doesn't guarantee anything um, other than that particular outcome that's happened it doesn't define your identity it says nothing about what will happen in the future another key part of separating ourselves from the project is embracing good enough the sense that this could be improved that's got criteria attached we know what we are trying to improve what we are improving and where we're taking that process if we can't define improved then we're casting judgment rather than using judgment and by this definition i see using judgment as giving us concrete anchors to understand what improvement looks and feels and sounds like we know what's missing or where we're going to need to sort of refine we can identify options from there to either experiment with or implement immediately um, that's going to bring about you know the possibility of that desired improvement And we're going to know also, we're going to have parameters, we're going to have the ability to measure, you know, when is good enough? When is this finished? Some things can't be improved in the way we might wish they could. This is one of the things I'll be exploring as I go back through some of the music I've created over the years on Patreon. There's some sometimes a kind of discrepancy between the idea that you have in your head and the way a song comes out into the world. Some things can be improved during production and during different parts of the process, but other things are missing in the kind of essence of the project itself or in the essence of something about the project. And so learning to recognize the difference between those things is really helpful. Um, It's a really helpful way to let go and move on. Otherwise, you end up trying to refine something, essentially ending up refining it to nothing, which is the inevitable point, end point of perfectionism, as I said earlier. You go round in circles thinking, oh, the problem's that thing over there. And I'm going to go and change that. Maybe the problem was the, the way I played the guitar. I'm going to re-record the guitar. Oh, no, the problem's actually the way the guitar sounds. I'm going to change the production thing or whatever. And you realise it's this other thing causing the problem. That's the thing over here. So you turn to that. And there's something influencing that. So you turn to that. And you end up just going round and round in circles, circling round and round, and then yeah whittling it down to nothing (laughs) it's a bit like you know when i used to cut my own hair it's like oh just a bit off that side a bit off that side well now it's uneven and you end up like with nothing (laughs) nothing left there's a third kind of judgment that i want to talk about briefly as well bring this up after a conversation i had a while back with someone uh, about saying no and people pleasing and we were talking about how how they get into situations that don't really bring them to life uh, and they're like ah this is i'm stuck here because they don't want to create conflict they won't say what they think of the work that the other person is doing we had a really useful and interesting 
chat where I was like, oh yeah, I totally resonate with that. Um, and so we were talking about how we might separate the person from the project in this context as well. So using that idea that uh, like with opportunities and with our engagement with other people's projects and requests and those kinds of things that, that come our way, it can feel like a judgment or a rejection of the person when we say no to them. It might also feel like a judgment or rejection of the person when we say this could be better. And we fear this because quite possibly it will be taken that way, you know. But that's not because it's inevitable that it would be taken that way. Often it's because the approach that we feel we have to take with it. And there are in fact approaches we can take to soften that blow and to separate the person from the project. I think to times for me where this has been done, uh, I think I've talked elsewhere about this, when people I've trusted the judgment and feedback of have essentially said, you're playing it safe. This is missing something, something I know is there that you've not put into it. Um, And my immediate reaction is usually, oh, go away. It's taken me ages. Um, I have to fight the urge to immediately get defensive with it. But I know if I can at least, um, I mean, often I will get uh, get defensive in, in the immediate aftermath, but I know if I can find time to pause long enough to, to listen to what is actually being said there, I'm going to discover whether this reaction in me um, is actually agreement. It's permission to be more me, more courageous, take more risks in sync with my creative voice. It's not saying uh, shut up, it's saying speak up. It's not saying, yeah, be be more sort of conforming, do what everyone else does. It's saying do the opposite of that. Um, allow the you within to have more of a go here. This sounds generic and boring. These are kinds of things that, <laughs> yeah, often sort of, I guess, uh, grapple with. It's not a personal insult. It's a challenge. It's an invitation. And when we give that to people... It's a valuable gift, not just to them, but to the world. We don't have to be obnoxious or dismissive. We can do it in ways that feel uh, natural to our own communication style. But it requires bravery, especially if we tend to be people pleasers and we want to avoid conflict. We might accept someone's first answer and think, oh, that's not great. Okay, I, I don't like this. Rather than listening to their first answer and saying, okay, how can they bring more of them to this party? How can you bring more of you to this um where are you in this and more specifically i was i was exploring in my conversation with this person you know what does this actually mean to you why does this matter to you what is it about this that brings you to life and these were the questions that really got us thinking about ways we can judge opportunities without judging the person we can develop filters that tell us whether or not this is a good fit you know those questions are a good start why does this matter to you you know, what are you hoping this is going to make possible? You know, if we can get a sense of the other person's intentions and their values, we get a pretty good intuitive indication of whether or not this is something for us right now. And if it doesn't resonate, we can use that in how we then use our judgment. It sounds like a really important thing for you to be doing right now. I hope it brings all those things that you're after. Um, it's not sort of completely on the same page as the things I'm focused on at the moment, um, but I really hope that it works out and maybe we have someone someone in mind who might be a better fit to to work with them or to you know give them what they need within it um and likewise if we feel like we want to be involved but there's something not quite happening in the project itself we can use the filters for judgment you know you say that this matters because of such and such how's that happening right now how's that being reflected in in what you're Um, doing with this at the moment and what could you do to bring more of that into what you're doing and so this this can be useful it can be useful to have ways to process to filter and to assess things um, that are not just an expression of personal feelings Um, and while it's absolutely fine to just say no (laughs) because you don't want to be involved in something it's not always a great feeling to do so it's good for a meme (laughs) but in reality I think a lot of us want to say no in a way that actually holds the other person with compassion and dignity and also doesn't make us feel like a really rotten person afterwards. Um, You know, maybe we don't want to do something. Um, No, because I don't want to. Isn't necessarily going to help us circle around to to what we do want either. 
um, you know, just sort of responding to that feeling of like, no, I don't want to do that. Um, doesn't shed any light that might potentially be hiding within those filters that would be like, because I want to do this. And actually so often we don't know what we want, but we do know what we don't want. Um, and raising awareness of what we're saying no to within an intuitive feeling can actually provide some insight um, to that. And so I was um, yeah, reminded of that tweet in, in the Haven last weekend, as I said earlier, and we're reading The Courage to be Disliked um, over the course of uh, it's like five sessions during spring um, of, of this year, 2023, as I'm recording this. And one of the themes that the book explores are feelings of inferiority and uh, inferiority complexes and also the pursuit of superiority and uh, superiority complexes. And so I found this this idea using feelings of inferiority uh, a really challenging way of seeing things. Um, feelings of inferiority are in some ways um, a description of desire, you know, enjoying what we don't have um, in the sense of seeing where we are and wanting to improve that situation. The feeling of inferiority is the positive part of this. Not holding ourselves down because, you know, we'll never be as good as others, but moving forwards because we want to grow, we want to make things better in different ways. So the pursuit of superiority is kind of like a sibling to this, much the same. It's not a drive for superiority over other people. It's a desire to just get better, to grow, to improve, to advance uh, your present situation in fact i think it kind of is desire desire is a really uniquely human thing in this sense of it being you know an awareness of what is missing and then taking action towards uh, sort of acquiring it um, in some way desire is what gives life meaning it creates this sort of gentle striving towards new horizons and enjoyment comes on that site it's the striving the process the journey of desire that gives the meaning it's those endeavors along the way that show us where desire has taken us and where it's brought us um, so far we're never gonna get there we're never gonna make it even if we get to where we believe making it resides we will desire something else once we get there or else we'll lose a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose. And, you know, that's not somewhere that you desire. And so in our book club session, I referenced this this grimace tweet, uh, which Tula um, very nicely <laughs> removed all the ums and ahs from uh, and wrote it down, shared it on, uh, on our Instagram, um, which was quite useful to read back and be like, ah, oh, yes, that's a, <laughs> a much nicer way of uh, summarizing what I said. Um, and what I did say was you can be improving and obviously you want to get better. You want to be getting better in whatever your craft is. But the idea of being dismissive of the person that has got you to where you are, uh, that's what I just found really sad. If you can't sort of, <laughs> there you go, if you can't sort of embrace that journey or the use along the way, your current self is going to be rejected by your future self. You can be guaranteed that who you are right now is not enough. You need to use that sort of insight to accept who who we are at the level of being, accepting this is me on the way to whatever I'm becoming. Um, and that's all part of the journey. I added that little um in there, um, <laughs> as I do, as I always do. So this feels like an important distinction. You know, if we see life through competition, we don't just hold others in this way, but we drive it into ourselves. You know, it's the source of beating ourselves up, being hard on what we've done and massively paving the way for perfectionism and inaction as we move forwards, as we sort of think about what we want to do. If we're afraid of judgment, we will either not act or not care. This has been on my mind since that tweet. How can we hold and relate to our past, including old work, old choices, old experiences in a compassionate and graceful way? How can we integrate and absorb rather than separate and disown? How can who I was be both in the past and in the present without it defining or limiting me? How can it be a chapter in the story that I can hold, not with critical judgment, but with joy, laughter and humour? 
And I think that last part is really interesting to explore because it's so important to be able to laugh with ourselves, to find things that we did ridiculous and strange, <laughs> but not in a harsh way, not with that disowning grimace, but rather with that kind of spirit that if I was talking to the me of 20 years ago, he'd be laughing as well. He wouldn't feel judged or criticised. We'd be kind of laughing together, not a cruel, dismissive, belittling laugh. No, a laugh from something somewhere far more true, from a place of enjoyment, deep recognition and shamelessness. If shame is to see ourselves through the eyes of the big other, the superego, the voice that tells us how to fit in um, and why we don't belong, then this kind of shamelessness is a rejection of that thing. It's a refusal to play the game. It separates the person from what we do. It grounds us in acceptance and okayness, regardless of our efforts and our actions. One of the ideas that comes up in The Courage to be Disliked is the distinction between equality and sameness. I think we can apply this to ourselves as well as to other people. You know, me and myself from 20 years ago, not the same, but we're equal. You know, I'm no better than him at the fundamental level of being, even though we're no longer quite the same person. Our judgments are different. The way we see aspects of the world are different. Our skills are different. We would not be in complete agreement about quite a lot of things if we sat down and had a chat. But that doesn't put us in competition. I'm also aware of this constant self that is separate from the thoughts and judgments that I had then, that I have today, and that I'll have in 20 years' time when I'm sure I'll look back at the me of now and think, oh, I wouldn't quite say it like that if I did that again today. So I hope that my pursuit of superiority will mean that we continue moving forward at our own pace. As the book says, though the distance covered and the speed of walking differ, everyone is walking equally in the same flat place. The pursuit of superiority is the mindset of taking a single step forward on one's own feet, not the mindset of competition of the sort that necessitates aiming to be greater than other people. The same could be true of ourselves. I want to keep growing, but I don't want to look back at what I'm doing now and grimace with shame. In the same way, I don't do that with the me of 20 years ago. As far as I'm concerned, growth is the ability to see things you would not do in the same way now and accept yourself anyway. Maybe the truth is the opposite, that if you're looking back and grimacing at everything you've done in the past, then you're not growing. The idea of feelings of inferiority can be challenging. Sounds like a negative position in some ways, but it says in The Courage to be Disliked, Adler recognises that feelings of inferiority are something everyone has. There's nothing bad about feelings of inferiority themselves, something you could think of as simply hoping to improve or pursuing an ideal state. For instance, a toddler learns to steady himself on both legs. It's the universal desire to learn language and improve and all the advancements of science throughout human history are due to this pursuit of superiority too. Um, and then, yeah, one holds up various ideals or goals and heads towards them. However, on not being able to reach one's ideals, one harbours a sense of being lesser. For instance, there's, there are chefs who, uh, the more inspired and accomplished they become, are forever beset with this sort of feeling of inferiority that makes them say to themselves, I'm still not good enough, or I've got to bring my cooking to the next level and that sort of thing so yeah this again it's an interesting thing to consider in the context of the bad infinite where we might find ourselves in a perpetual pursuit of perfection this can be exacerbated by a world where we can see the shiny results of other people's endeavors from all over the world at all times through the internet through social media if you pitch yourself in comparison to others, you will never be good enough because even if you become the best at something in your field, you'll quickly become aware that you're really not the best in other areas. Um, and yeah, you'll also become preoccupied with staying the best in whatever it is that you feel you are the best at. And by my reckoning, you're going to get very little genuine pleasure from life because there's nothing particularly intrinsically rewarding about judging yourself by the light of the world around you. So this speaks to the difference between feelings of inferiority, the pursuit of superiority, and a complex in each or both of these. Someone with uh, an apparent superiority complex actually may have an inferiority complex. It just looks like 
they think they're better than everyone else. And so the book says you harbour an inferiority complex about education and think I'm not well educated, so I can't succeed. Put the other way around, the reasoning can be if only I were well educated, I could be really successful. So there's an implication within that, that without that limiting factor, uh, we would be capable, valuable and successful. Like we'd have everything we'd ever dreamed of, but it's this, you know, this thing is stopping us from, from fulfilling that potential. And this can be a long-term story that supports our sense of superiority. You know, the true me is amazing, but it's being hindered. It's being prevented. It's being stopped by these, um, these external factors or forces. In other words, it places you as the kind of victim of the conditions of the world around you. And rather than using that as something to grow a pursuit of superior superiority out from, uh, you kind of just use it to justify a disempowered uh, place of inaction. And so the book also says there's the kind of person who likes to boast about his achievements, someone who clings to his past glory and always is recounting memories of the time when his light shone brightest. Maybe you know some people like this. All such people can be said to have a superiority complex. Those who go so far as to boast about the things out loud actually have no confidence in themselves. As Adler clearly indicates, the one who boasts does so only out of feeling uh, of a feeling of inferiority. If one really has confidence in oneself, one doesn't feel the need to boast. It's because one's feeling of inferiority is strong that one boasts. One feels the need to flaunt one's superiority all the more. There's the fear that if one doesn't do that, not a single person will accept one the way I am. This is a full-blown superiority complex. It's very hard to say that number of ones in a single paragraph, but yeah, that's from the book. So in essence, superiority is inferiority, uh, just in different clothing in this sense. Adler says, in fact, if we were to ask ourselves who's the strongest person in our culture, the logical answer would be the baby. The baby rules and cannot be dominated. The baby rules over the adults with his weakness. And it's because of this weakness that no one can control them. Quite a few people try to be a special being by adopting this kind of attitude when they're sick or injured or suffering the mental anguish of heartbreak. These people reject others' efforts to connect by saying, you wouldn't understand what it's like to be me. Completely understanding the feelings of the person who is suffering is something that no one is capable of. This is, again, a powerful idea to think about. How often do we allow this kind of weakness to define things? The attitude kind of puts a wall to genuine change, to real compassion, to the potential for proper empathy to occur, because it says, well, no one understands, and I don't want anyone to understand. It refuses to allow connection, and it rejects the sort of pursuit of connection. It also assumes it understands the position of everybody else. It's kind of conspicuous in the one-way street of it. I see all of you. I know what you're feeling, you're thinking, and you're doing. And I know why. But you will never understand me. And so this also paints itself as a desire for change, but it's not really. When we say you wouldn't understand, we're kind of shutting the door to the kind of connection that actually is necessary to create change. We enjoy the story that we can use to separate ourselves from others. And maybe we come to rely on it, need it. In this context, we don't want circumstances that would actually give us the success we say we desire, because that would require us to sort of take that action in the pursuit of superiority. It would require us to take responsibility, to be less cynical, to take a risk. If we don't feel it now, we won't feel it then. And this kind of mindset might turn our attention and our energy towards willing others to fail rather than the pursuit of superiority on our own journey, you know, focusing on, you know, what we're doing in that pursuit. We might become taken by what the other person is doing and just become kind of hell-bent and determined to beat them. Another thing I'm going to be looking at over on Patreon is this um, idea of like, those times in the story where shame is lurking and it creates perceived dead ends and cul-de-sacs where we convince ourselves that uh, we can't go back there um, or we take the endeavour, we view it with a grimace and say, well, that was stupid. Um, and actually that, that these experiences can be ripe for genuine, real growth, not just the kind of growth 
that the tweet alludes to, which doesn't make space to smash through the wall at the bottom of the dead end. You know, sometimes it's by integrating and owning the moments that we want to hold with a grimace, with a judgment, with disowning sort of a sense of uh, cringe, um, a sense of fragmentation. Actually, when we sort of confront that and go to those places, we can find real deep self-gentleness and self-compassion that is actually going to be the key to unlocking sort of smashing through that wall and realizing oh, it's not a dead end it's not a cul-de-sac it leads to this beautiful place on the other side of it and in the wake of that we might find a sense of freedom the kind talked about in the courage to be disliked that says you know freedom isn't an absence of the thing that you don't want it's an acceptance of it and a willingness to face it we will be disliked by someone whether we like it or not. Freedom is accepting that fact. And so we'll be thinking about, you know, how that applies to different areas of, uh, of life and, you know, experiencing it through those, through those dead ends and cul-de-sacs. Our past project, our endeavour, our effort, it happened. Freedom is kind of accepting that, it's rolling with it, owning it as part of the story. Something beautiful about people who are able to do that. There's something different about self-deprecation and self-disowning. We can laugh with ourselves and enjoy the story. That's different from slating ourselves with criticism, judgment, and a sense of like, yeah, that's not me. I don't want anything to do with that. So let's finish with some thoughts on self-compassion. I think that's what a lot of this uh, kind of boils down to and can be summed up by, again, I don't know the intention of that original tweet, but I've used it as a device to hang ideas that I know so many of us struggle with. You know, in my reading of it, the core is quite opposite to self-compassionate. It's self-judgmental, it's self-critical in the most unhelpful sorts of ways. Casting judgment rather than using judgment. Weaponizing criticism as something that can't be appeased. It's the insatiable monster from which perfectionism is fed and grows. We see this in a lot of hustle culture where people are caught in this endless cycle of trying to earn self-worth and their belonging in the world. We're compelled to work harder, to be endlessly productive, to commodify creativity as content that we just pour effort and time into. And then it's just swallowed into this empty mechanized abyss where everyone sacrifices our labor, our toil, and moreover, our care, our love, our desire. As Byung-Chul Han writes in The Burnout Society, ultimately the dialectic of master and slave does not yield a society where everyone is free and capable of leisure too. Rather, it leads to a society of work in which the master himself has become a labouring slave. In this society of compulsion, everyone carries a work camp inside. This labour camp is defined by the fact that one is simultaneously prisoner and guard, victim and perpetrator. One exploits oneself. It means that exploitation is possible even without domination. I don't quote that as something to depress you. I hope uh, it doesn't. But rather it's something to encourage you. I'm going to find a way to justify that. But yeah, it's so frighteningly familiar that it feels like something we might start taking seriously rather than looking at ourselves as the problem. It to kind of recognize that our pursuit of superiority as a species might need us to recognize and free ourselves and one another from this sort of hustle mad, grind obsessed, positivized culture, whatever that looks like. So let's replace the grimace with a hug, <laughs> acceptance, grace, compassion, self-worth cannot be earned. You are accepted. You are not enough. I'm not enough. No one is enough. And that's what makes us fundamentally okay, equal, accepted and acceptable in our not enoughness. There's something important about that mantra of you are enough just as you are. But I think it also seems like a lie through the lens of society. And often when we think about ourselves through the internalized stories we tell ourselves, in fact, I think that this disowning grimace is fueled by taking exception to the idea that what well, I thought of myself as enough. Huh, what was he thinking? So what if we adopted the mantra, you are not enough, but you're still accepted and acceptable and you will not be any more accepted and acceptable if you try being more enough or something like that. 
You don't find any more self-worth by doing more, working harder, being more efficient, hustling harder, buying more cars, getting more likes or whatever. How might you make peace with past efforts that you're tempted to grimace at? It's not to say that you would or should be satisfied with putting that standard out now, but it was necessary then. Celebrate the bravery. You did what you could with what you had at the time. The skills, the energy, the motivation, the knowledge, the courage, the desire, the people around you and so on. You're not in the same place now, but you're not more deserving of compassion and acceptance at the level of being at either stage of that story. How can you process those past endeavours? If you're not grimacing every time you look at old work, then you aren't growing. That suggests that the only way to process this stuff that we've done in the past is to grimace. But just because it's old doesn't mean it's bad and irrelevant. Likewise, it's not all relevant and helpful. It's time to integrate some stuff and let go of other things. I find it really helpful to go through and process things from time to time like that. You know, voice memos on my phone are a good example. Everything seems like a good idea at the time of recording. They're not all good ideas worth pursuing. So I purge some and integrate others. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm embarking on a project through Patreon. We're going to be exploring, I guess, what I've been talking about in this episode in a kind of more practical, hands-on way uh, over the coming weeks and months. Um, As you may well know, I'm currently recording a new album. And as part of the process of making space for that, I've found myself diving into the past and kind of whacking through the weeds of of old material, of old things that I've put out over the years. There's been a lot of change in my life over the past few years, which I'm kind of reconciling in different ways. And also there's a kind of natural awareness of life changing around me, of seasons shifting and that kind of thing. So it's a really good opportunity to create a bridge from somewhere to elsewhere, from what was to what is becoming. One of the methods I've been exploring for that has been, you know, through sort of exploring different ways of expressing myself musically um, through like I've been ex- doing a lot of like instrumental stuff recently. we going back into early songs and allowing the music to speak across time uh, between those original versions and to this sort of what is often an ambient instrumental reimagining of that thing. I'm using the experience to reflect on questions like, you know, what has changed? And what hasn't changed? Can we find creative ways to reconcile past moments? Where are the dead-end walls that I need to knock through? Hints of shame, envy, resentment, perfectionism. Things that I can confront and work with. So, if this sounds like something you would find helpful to explore with me, um, I'm going to make it interactive. And as, as I say, it's like going through some, some exercise and tools that I use in coaching for myself <laughs> and encourage you to um, yeah explore them in your own sort of situation as well uh, if this is stuff that you'd find helpful I would love to uh, to yeah be part of that with you um, and yeah in this sense I, I also don't want this to be a self-indulgent dive into my own navel um, but rather use it as as a kind of process I'm going through to open up a bigger environment for others who are doing similar things in their own way as well to take that idea that if you're not grimacing every time you look at old work then you're not growing and replace it with the freedom to enjoy the fact we are growing when we stop grimacing every time we look at old work because we're building a solid relationship with it we are equal to our old selves even though we're different now we're equal to the self we are becoming no matter what happens into the future. We are not enough. No one is, no one ever will be. But we are completely acceptable and accepted. And even if we work out how to live for a million years, work every hour, earn every dollar, there's nothing we can do to become more accepted than we are right now. Our self-worth is the same now as it could ever be if we did what we believe we need to do in order to earn it. If we don't feel it now, we won't feel it then. But we can feel it now if we accept it, accept our messy worthiness in our not-enoughness alongside the messy, chaotic, confusing, imperfect worthiness that everyone has access to, even though they're not enough either. I know these words are just words. They're not enough to shift things at a fundamental level. But I hope they speak to some part of you if you need to hear this message right now.
I'm going to leave you with one of those pieces of music I was talking about that I've been reimagining. This is one I didn't plan to create because it goes further back than I thought it was going to go. <laughs> but it's where I'm going to start the journey um, with my old band Afron, an REP that is not available online anywhere. <laughs> but I think we'll make an exclusive appearance on Patreon very soon. Um, so this is a reimagining of a song called Louder, which in its day was a, <laughs> a lot more raucous much more raucous rock song um so yeah if you want to do that then come over to patreon.com slash andy mort um join me for the journey i'd love to yeah explore all this stuff with you and share what i'm discovering along the way all right see you soon bye-bye